This is Iron Sports, 95.9, and we're honored to have soon-to-be Major League Baseball Hall of Famer, one of the greatest pitchers in the game ever, Jim Cott, who just wrote a book called Good as Gold. So, Jim, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, happy to talk about the book. I've had a lot of fun doing it. So um, you mentioned in the book coming up in a, if it's a couple weeks away, you're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. You've been there many times before for a lot of uh, induction ceremonies with David Ortiz, Tony Oliva, Gil Hodges, Bud Fowler, Buck O'Neill, and Minnie Minnesota. So just a few weeks away, what are your feelings uh, before the, your big day? Well, I think the closer we get to that day, the more, uh, you know, kind of there's an excitement there. Uh, it's been a It's been a great time of, I guess you'd say, gratitude and joy these last seven months. Um, And it's just a constant every day finding out something new that's going to happen. So it's a very special honor in a very special fraternity that I've really known about since uh, I was 10 years old because my dad was such a baseball fan. So to finally have it uh, come to reality... uh, I have no idea what my reaction will be on induction day, but uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. And you grew up in a small town in Michigan. Um, I, your dad was a owned a dairy business, and with a town I think with five thousand people. And you, was when you were growing up, you never imagined that you'd be from take take you on a career that went from New Zealand to Australia to Taiwan, everywhere around the world playing baseball. Yeah, that's, you know, everything I've done, every paycheck practically other than when I was a teenager working has uh, has come as a result of being a baseball player and all the travels that you mentioned. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's been quite a special privilege, I think, to be a baseball player and experience all that I've experienced. I mean, I think people, when they look at your numbers, and it's just they're just stunning. I mean, the 283 wins, but 321 seasons, 2,461 strikeouts. You play 25 years. I mean, just to think, I mean, you're like Tom Brady before Tom Brady in terms of longevity. And 16 gold gloves. Like, you want to start winning the gold gloves. I mean, there are people, how many people kidded you that, you know, I, I could have won a gold glove, but you had won it so many times. But it's just, those numbers are, are just amazing. Well, I was fortunate. You know, I had a, a durable body. I was left-handed. Uh, uh, my control, as is the case with most young pitchers, was a little shaky in the early going. But, um, you know, I developed uh, into being a good control pitcher and uh, stayed pretty much injury-free. So, uh, you know, that's what really enabled me to, uh, to play for a long time. And then, I mean, from your book, one of the most – you were in the World Series 17 years apart, which is just amazing to think about. But in 1965 against the Dodgers, that's the famous game the series when Sandy Koufax would not pitch game one because of Yom Kippur. But you faced him in game two and won. And, and you had some interesting stories from the book about when Drysdale was knocked out of game one, what, uh, the, what he said to the manager. Yeah, when Alston came out to take him out, because as you mentioned, Sandy didn't pitch game one because of the Jewish holiday. And Drysdale said to Walter Olson, I bet you wish I was Jewish, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Which was uh, a clever line coming at that particular time. But, uh, you know, it was a tough assignment, obviously, drawing Sandy 2-5-7. and seven. But, you know, we've become friends. I'm hoping he can be at the induction. He is 86 now. He didn't know for sure if he could be there. But uh, 
Yeah, that's the last World Series where every win was a complete game win. All seven games were complete games by the winning pitcher, and it hasn't happened since. No surprise because how specialized the game has become. And I mentioned this, you, you really, you hold, hold no punches, pull no punches, I would say, in your book in terms of criticizing what you, where you see the game going. And one of the things I've said a lot is that I love, I love when I could go to a game and look who the starting pitcher is and say, okay, that's a game I really want to see. Like Justin Verlander is pitching tomorrow or pitching, you know, in a game or someone like that. And I think today with the openers and pitchers pitching one inning and two innings, it's taken away. Whereas like even like a sport like football, you don't take Patrick Mahomes out of the games. Patrick Mahomes can play the whole game. They're building their stars, whereas I think the star pitcher today is more diminished. Oh, no question. They're become like what we call long relievers. You know, years ago, they pitched the early innings. And uh, it's kind of sad for the fans. I mean, I remember my dad in 1948 from our little town in Michigan, he drove to Cleveland to see the Indians and the Yankees play a doubleheader. They had 82,000 people there that night in the old uh, Cleveland Municipal Stadium. And uh, it was Vic Rashi and Allie Reynolds against uh, Bob Feller and Bob Levin. And, you know, you knew that all of the pitchers were going to probably pitch a, cl- a complete game or close to it. So that was the big attraction to go to see the pitching matchup. It's uh, like in modern times, if, uh, for example, if Max Scherzer or Jacob deGrom were healthy and they could see them pitch against, say, uh, a Clayton Kershaw and actually see him go the entire game. But uh, you don't see that. And and also, with all the days off and the way they're protecting players, uh, for example, in Minnesota, they have a maintenance program mapped out, so Byron Buxton is only going to play 100 games. Well, uh, Byron Buxton is one of the most exciting players in all of baseball. So if my dad takes me to a Twins game and said, oh, we're going to see Byron Buxton, well, there's only a 2-3 and three chance that he might be playing. And, uh, you know, so that part of it is disappointing, too, as years ago, I mean, my first game that my dad took me to, I saw Hank Greenberg and I saw Ted Williams. Well, you just knew they were going to play. They played every day. Yeah, I mean, that's the – and it really, that takes away the aspect. I mean, we're seeing it in basketball, too. But just to be able to go to a game, make the attempt, spend all the money, and not see your stars, that is a problem. And, but you talk about it in terms of your pay. I mean, people were – I think you earned – it said in the book, $2 million your entire career. And you, But there was a series of, like, 50, almost every year was a one-year contract. In those days, you would just keep negotiating. You talked about how Clark Griffith in uh, um, Minnesota was just, you know, you won 25 games and they just kept giving you a pay cut even though you were their best pitcher. Well, that's the way it was before free agency. That's why we, you know, when Marvin Miller came along and we finally got free agency, had the owners been a little more uh, cooperative in terms of recognizing the value of players, but their attitude, most of the owners for a long time before free agency, hey, you know, you're lucky to be able to play because if you if you weren't playing, we get somebody else. So they really tried to make you feel as worthless as you as they possibly could, and that's what enabled them to keep payroll down, and that's what caused the players to finally, uh, you know, stand up and say, hey, we, we want free agency. We want, we want to be able to uh, go where we want to go, and, and obviously the floodgates have opened, and the tail's wagging the dog now because the owners, because they can't trust one another and they just keep wanting to outspend each other, why 
the players are the uh, benefactors of these outrageous uh, salaries that they're getting guaranteed for a number of years. And, you know, uh, we didn't have that before uh, 1967, I think, 68, right in there. I mean, in 1973, you were weighed by the Twins, and then you they said that, you know, we figure your career is over, you're 34 years old, but then you come to the White Sox, and when one year you win 21 wins, the next win you got 20. And uh, so it was, it, you sort of had these revivals throughout your career when everybody thought – you were done. You just kept getting better or coming back and having some of your best years. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, professional sports, at least from a pitching standpoint, and probably hitters too, it's a game of adjustment and a game of, you know, you constantly have to try to improve. And when I fractured my wrist in 1972, sliding into base, I was having a very successful season halfway through the year. And then my season was over. So coming back next year, I was a little slow, uh, you know, to kind of get my act together. I wasn't pitching very well, and I couldn't blame the Twins. I mean, I think my record was 11-12, and 12, and they had a couple of young pitchers, Dave Goltz, Bert Blyleven was already there, Tommy Hall was coming along, and so I think they just kind of said, well, his time is over, but I remember telling uh, Buck Rogers, our bullpen coach, I said, you know, my arm is beginning to, to come back from that half years of inactivity. And I said, I still believe that I have a lot of pitching left. And uh, where I was very fortunate is when Roland Heeman claimed my contract, I got back together with Johnny Sane. And Johnny kind of had me reinvent my motion and uh, – you know, he was that kind of a coach. You know, he just said, if this isn't working, let's try something else. And then I was fortunate to have a manager like Chuck Tanner, who even though I went through some difficult times in 74, I wasn't pitching well, uh, he just kept giving me the ball and believing in me. And, and that's what enabled me to have those two successful years there and then also pitch for another eight years after that. And some of those years were with the Phillies, and I, that was sort of my former baseball years. I remember you, you know, as a Pirate fan back then, so you were, the, the, people forget the Phillies, the Philadelphia and the Pirates used to be in the same division. So big rivals, and uh, they had th- three really great teams, but they never made the World Series. They were, for all those years you were there in Philadelphia, those three years. Those were really physically the best teams that I ever played on. Uh, we won 100 games uh, two of those years, I think 90-some. The other won the division all three years. Uh, I wasn't used the same way, unfortunately. Uh, Chuck Tanner had told Eddie Ozark, pitch him every four days, pitch him every three days. Uh, he could pitch 300 innings for you. And uh, and Danny kind of spot started. He liked to match up against if the other team had a lot of right-hand hitters. So I never really got into a a good rhythm there. And then he used me to pinch run in, uh, I think it was in August and uh, slid into third base and cracked my kneecap. So I, my, my season was kind of shot there and I never really, I feel bad because I never really gave the Phillies fans, uh, you know, the best version of what I could have been. But uh, by the same token, we had great teams and uh, made great relationships there. And as you mentioned, our battle every year with the, uh, with Pops and Parker and all those great pirate teams, uh, we were the one-two punch in that National League East, and we had some really good uh, good battles there. And then after playing with the Yankees for a year, you went over to the Cardinals and what fi- and finally won your World Series in 82. And it must have fun. You were not the, the superstar pitcher, but you did play a role on the team in terms of in getting in a, a number of those games to, to lead the Cardinals to a victory in 82. 
You know, Whitey Herzog uh, became our manager after the Cardinals had uh, picked me up um, just, I think, out of desperation. They wanted some experience down in their bullpen, and I uh, I joined them in, uh, in 1980. And uh, then when Whitey took over, uh, I had started some games in 81. I did quite well. And uh, Whitey said, I really want you to be my lefty, lefty, you know, lefty on lefty reliever. Uh, he said, I'm going to build my pitching staff from the ninth inning back. He got Bruce Suter. We actually had Bruce Suter and Raleigh Fingers both for a short period of time. We had to trade one of them, and we traded Raleigh to Milwaukee uh, and got a few players there that were very helpful to us. But uh, having that role as a lefty-lefty guy, uh, I really kind of enjoyed it. And, of course, the, the biggest part of the enjoyment was that uh, – in 1982, we, we did win the World Series with a with a team that hit 67 home runs, stole a lot of bases, played good defense, and we had Bruce Suter at the end of the game. So, you know, that was uh, that was a great way to finish my last full year because I found out later from the Elias uh, Stats Bureau, no professional player in any professional sport has played 24 years before getting a championship ring. So... Uh, uh, to be able to get that in my 24th and final season, uh, you can understand why that was my most exciting season, and I'm really uh, thankful that I was a member of that team. And then you were able to have this 25 <laughs> sort of year of career again in broadcasting, where you were broadcasting Yankee games and Twins games, and on the, on the MLB network you with Bob Costas, so and uh, on ESPN, on CBS, everything. I mean, I've seen everyone who's watched baseball has seen you, and you brought the game to them. So it's really cool that you've had this second career in broadcasting. Yeah, I was very fortunate. You know, I segued right in from playing, which I was actually. Uh, 45 when I went to spring training with the Pirates in uh, 84. And then um, I got right into broadcasting during college games. Year, years ago, back in the 70s, if there was a rain delay, they would ask one of the players to come up to the broadcast booth and still, you know, just tell stories because they <laughs> didn't have alternative programming to go to. And so I did that with the Phillies with Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis, and uh, there was a young man named Jody Shapiro who was with Major League Films at the time, and he said, you know, you should look at getting into this business. And so when we had uh, a player strike at 81, he called me and said uh, the home team sports network, which carried the Oriole games, even though Major League Baseball wasn't, uh, wasn't playing then, he said, we're going to do AAA games. Would you like to go to Rochester and do a game with Ralph Kiner. Actually, the shortstop for Rochester was Cal Ripken, and one of the starting pitchers was Mike Boddicker. So that 50-day uh, uh, work stoppage that we had, I did a half a dozen at least games of AAA, and that's where I kind of got the word out, and people, you know, you, you sort of put a tape together, and I uh, appealed to ESPN where I got a chance to do some work there later on TBS, and that's kind of where it started, and it just snowballed into uh, here we are in 2022, and I've been doing that for uh, over 36 years. Amazing, amazing. And you wrote the book, The Good is, Good is Gold, uh, at, at, which is available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, everything. I encourage people 
to read it because you have some, you, you talk about your, your background and your life story, but then you said, I got some opinions and you certainly have opinions. And I love this section in the book where you go, this is what I don't like about baseball. And a lot of things you say, a lot of people also say in terms of, I'll just throw a few out there, but like the pitch counts and the analytics and the speed guns and the launch angles and that use that you think it just takes away from just the enjoyment of watching the beautiful game of baseball. Yeah, I think what it really does is it, it really hurts the players because the players today have more natural ability than than we did. Than, than I, I, I noticed that when Andy Pettit came up with the Yankees. He could do things at age 22 that I couldn't do. And yet we've, we've kind of hothoused these, these players and, and sort of tamped down their ability because they're so interested in protecting them from injuries. And we've having, we're having more injuries than ever before. And as we discussed earlier, you don't go to a game and see your star player play or see the pitcher pitch nine innings. And I just think the analytics, the radar gun, uh, all the science that has invaded the game. Uh, you know, if, if I were younger and, and had uh, Elon Musk's money, I'd buy a franchise and I'd say no analytics, no radar guns, no video. I'm just going to throw the ball out there and say, let's go play like you were in high school and uh, try to win a pennant. That'd be a lot of fun to do that because uh, I think the players are capable of doing it. Yeah, when I was reading your book, I said, I go, I wonder if he's going to mention about when Cash, uh, the manager of Tampa, removed Ian Snell in the World Series. And right then, like the next paragraph, you're like, I can't believe I'm watching World Series and Ian Snell's pitching lights out and they removed him from the game just for that. Yeah, I was talking to Sandy Koufax, uh, who gave me a nice congratulatory call after the Hall of Fame announcement, and I said, Sandy, you know, in Game 7, uh, you were struggling a little bit in the, uh, I think it was the sixth inning, might have been the fifth, he, he couldn't throw his curveball anymore, and it was the third time through the batting order, and we had a couple men on, they actually had Drysdale warming up, and uh, Junior Gilliam made a great play on a ground ball, but I said, Sandy, if that happened today, we'd have had you out of the game, because analytics would say, wait, wait, we can't have him pitching <laughs> through the batting order the third time. <laughs> what a break that would have been for us. <laughs> right. And then you mentioned about all the great players you play with, players that you like, players you did like. And one of the players you mentioned in the book that you did not have high regard for, per se, would be Alex Rodriguez. And you were pretty critical of him in terms of, uh, you know, his involvement with steroids and other things. Yeah, I think uh, I think I would be more critical of baseball uh, as much as with Alex because he was – suspended twice i mean he was he was caught twice he was actually suspended for a full year and with any commissioner in the past he would have been suspended for life so i i really thought that he uh he kind of took unfair advantage of the game but the game you know let him in but i i just think if he uh if he had been able to carry himself like Derek jeter i think he would have been much more uh, you know acceptable as a fan and uh so from from that part that standpoint i uh you know i just didn't warm up to that no no question about his talent you know he was as talented a player as as there was but i i think he could have uh i think he put obviously would have been a surefire hall of fame candidate and i think he would have been a lot more popular a player uh in the eyes of the of the fans and the fans in general because uh Everybody I talk to now, you know, they, they don't really have a, a high regard for him, despite the fact that he, he uh, amassed a lot of impressive numbers. 
And then later in your career, were you able to keep extending it? Um, you've talked about how you talked to Frank Job, the noted doctor who did the Tommy John surgery. You started working on Nautilus machines to try to get your strength. So I guess it, it was frustrating for you to see that then when you retired, really the steroid era was after you were finished playing about what happened in baseball uh, with, you know, in terms of taking that just recovering and working out into the next extreme, really. Yeah, and again, I think that's that's baseball's mistake. You know, we had the player strike in 94, and I think if Bud Selig could do it over again, he would have handled that differently. You know, the World Series was canceled, and a lot of fans really uh, lost their interest in baseball. I don't know if we've ever recovered from that because baseball attendance is down, ratings are down, and now that the other sports continue to play, I mean, the uh, NHL just ended, the NBA just uh, ended recently. And here we are uh, to start a summer. Baseball used to own the summer, but they don't anymore. And I think baseball's uh, desire to kind of make people forget about the 94 strike is that they knew that the steroid era was starting. But, you know, McGuire and Sosa were in that historic home run battle, and that created a lot of interest. So I think they kind of let it slide under the rug. And, you know, I'd have to be honest, if I were playing in that era and there wasn't any penalty, I would have been tempted to do the same thing. But I just I think baseball made a big mistake uh, by allowing that to happen. And I have to blame the Players Association as well. I had a great relationship with Marvin Miller, but Marvin was so civil rights, you know, heavy and he just thought any kind of drug testing was uh, an infringement on our privacy. And I always said, Marvin, our sport depends on the integrity, the, the trust of the fans. And a fan doesn't want to go to the park and say, well, this guy's, you know, doing stuff illegally. And uh, so that that's what I think was kind of a, an ugly time for that steroid era till they finally, you know, got testing in and, and put a stop to it. You know, I found it funny in your book, you, you, you talked about George Steinbrenner and you had dealings with him as a player where he promised you a contract and then reneged. And then as a broadcaster, when you were nervous that he was going to tell you what to say and how to say it. And uh, just to, to summarize a little bit your interactions with one of the most famous owners in the history of baseball. Yeah, I think when you're a player, George uh, enjoys taking advantage of you, which <laughs> he did with me. He uh, he promised me things verbally and then I had never dealt with him before. So, you know, I was always kind of of a mind to just trust someone until they gave me reason not to trust him. And eventually that came about with George. But then when I was an announcer for the Yankees, he, he did some wonderful things. I mean, actually, uh, last week, Thursday, the Yankees gave me uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and that was presented to me by the by the Steinbrenner family. So uh, we, we had a really good relationship uh, at the end, despite uh, the way it started when I was a player and he was an owner. It, it was uh, stunning when you read your book that you mentioned, even people that you've had problems with. Oh, I, I had a contract dispute with this person, or this umpire threw me out of the game and never gave me the right calls, but I'm still a longtime friend with them. I see them, I talk to them. So it just shows the type of character and person you are. The fact that you remain friends with all these people that have maybe wronged you in your life, but the fact that you were able to put things under the rug and, and become, fresh, stay friend, or become friends. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, like Joel McDonald, the general manager in St. Louis, he was just playing the game. They had us under their thumb. Not much we could do about it. And, uh, you know, you you, uh, you you stood up for yourself as much as you could. But then when you get them away from 
the baseball life and just into public life, why uh, they're good people normally. I mean, good people, uh, but they just used their power in baseball to uh, take advantage of certain people. And I happen to be one of those they try to take advantage of. And then one final question. We're talking to Jim Cott, uh, author of Good as Gold, and who's going to be a Hall of Fame inductee at the end of the month. Um, you're just in the past few years, your work with the World Baseball Classic, the fact that going over to Australia, New Zealand, spending a month there, uh, bringing the game to them, you've really been spreading baseball around the world, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I got a chance to do the World Baseball Classic back in 2009, and I've done actually three of them, they have over four years. And then through that, I met some of the people that were involved in international baseball, like Robert Einhorn, who played briefly for the Yankees, uh, ran the Dutch program. And then I met Ryan Flynn, who was also a Yankee farmhand, and he ran the New New Zealand program. And uh, my wife is an avid fly fisher. So we uh, we ended up going over there for a couple of months. And the Kiwis, uh, baseball is kind of a new sport to them. They've played a lot of cricket and rugby and softball. And and now they're beginning to – they have a professional – team in the uh, Australian Baseball League. So baseball is gaining more and more popularity, but uh, that was a lot of fun to go over there, not just for the baseball, but just the country in general and the people. It's just a wonderful place to visit. Well, Jim, you've had just an amazing career in playing, managing, and uh, playing and and uh, broadcasting. And just a, you know, congratulations once again being inducted in the Hall of Fame. What a great honor. And I appreciate you coming on our show and talking about it a little bit. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it and uh, appreciate it very much. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, the exciting days ahead. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. So congratulations once again. And it's such a worthy honor for someone who had such a, I said, a f- tremendous career and your love of baseball. And, and uh, the book, I encourage anyone to read it because it really is uh, a long history of what baseball is and, and, and I, just your opinions of the, the game, just tremendous. Thank you very much.